Take your Bibles, please, and turn them to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And I want to look at maybe 10 or 12 lessons we can learn from Nehemiah. He's an amazing uh, man of God. Uh, Nehemiah was an interesting prophet because he ministered around the same time as Ezra did. And Ezra kind of set the stage, as we'll see, for Nehemiah. And he's got a whole book dedicated to him and his work. Uh, it's, you know, 13 chapters long. And it's packed with a lot of lessons. And we're not going to get through the whole book. And we're not starting a new book in the Bible. Uh, pretty soon I'm getting back to, believe it or not, Ecclesiastes and Revelation. It's just been really crazy with everything going on and coming back uh, last year. And the Mexico trip is back on. Is it still on today, Angel? Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's been just crazy with this whole COVID thing. So we'll be out there building a home for Jonathan and, and, and Stacy as a minister. And hopefully a church building really soon too. A lot of the funds have come in. I thought all the funds had come in, but they're not quite there yet. But they're getting closer, which is really good. So pray about that and ask the Lord how you might help. It's kind of interesting because I'm in Nehemiah. And his whole thing was about building God's kingdom. And also building physical structure which was uh, the walls around Jerusalem. And when you look at what's going on there, remember, we're told in the scripture that these things were written not only to warn us, 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 10. They're given examples of people who fell so we won't fall in the way that they did. But they're also written that we might have hope, amen? And to engender hope in our hearts and encourage us to press on in the Lord, Amen. And Nehemiah is a book of a lot of hope. It's a very encouraging book. So this isn't a message so much about warning, although there be a couple warnings in here that we can learn from as well. But a uh, message of encouragement. How many want to get close to the Lord? How many want to be used by the Lord? How many want to stand before him and say, hey, well, here, well done, good and faithful servant, amen? Nehemiah was a really faithful servant. We can really look, learn from his life. And I really love him because, and, and what, what he did. He was, he was very, very passionate and he reminds me that people have different ministry styles that you can say, well, if this person would minister more like this or that, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, uh, they had, you know, God used them differently. We all have a different phys physical fingerprint and spiritual fingerprint, you know? And I tell people, Nehemiah and Ezra were, all, you know, practically contemporaries, but they had totally different ministry styles, you know? Uh, you know, Ezra tore his, you know, his robe, you know, and pulled his beard out in anguish over sin and wanting to make sure the people of God were right with him, where Nehemiah tore their clothes and tore their beards out. You know, he's a little different than Ezra. And don't use that as an excuse to bust somebody up for Jesus, you know. That's not the message there, you know. But uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at these two guys. But it's very interesting because the story, and you remember that there was a split kingdom. God brought the 12 tribes into the land of Israel, right? The land of Canaan. He gave them uh, precepts, commands, gave them 613 laws, uh, civil laws, moral laws, ceremonial laws. And they were called to keep these laws and the law was a tutor that would point them to Jesus, amen? But they went astray, radically astray. And they had a form of godliness, but they weren't, their hearts weren't in it, many of them. And God disciplined them a number of times. Just go through the book of Judges. 
God spanks them over and over again. And then talks about how they're restored. And then it talks about how they're doing good again. And then they just go back in the same junk. And then he has to spank them again. And that could sound familiar to us at times. We had to make sure we walk with the Lord. So it's interesting because at this point, though, it was very pivotal because the kingdom had grown under King David and King Solomon had fallen into idolatry. And because of his idolatry and his sin and the sins of his son Rehoboam, the kingdom split, the kingdom of Israel, which was made up of 12 tribes, right? But the northern tribes, the 10 tribes, revolted against his son because his son just raised the taxes in an extraordinary way and they were already set in sin and, and and they formed their own kingdom. They didn't want to go down to Jerusalem and Jeroboam started a counterfeit kingdom. Remember that? And then he wanted to set up a counterfeit altar and so forth. You know, we read about that in the scripture there. And the 10 kingdoms were divided from the two southern kingdoms, which were Judah, where Jerusalem was, okay, and the tribe of Benjamin, which was not far from there. So you had these two kingdoms, but these two kingdoms, the wickedest of the two kingdoms, for a time anyway, was the, was the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom got into all kinds of idolatry. In fact, when you read about the kingdom, the kings in the northern kingdom, it's like over and over again, they're all evil. You know, it seems like just boom, 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 boom. Where in the southern kingdom, you have, you know, some good guys, some, of the, some good kings mixed, mixed with some really bad ones too. So around uh, 586 or so, the northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians, which God said he was bringing in to discipline them as his battle axe. And they were dispersed throughout, you know, Assyria and different parts of the world. And the 10 tribes, some say they're the lost 10 tribes. They still call them the last, lost tribes. But Paul will tell you, well, or you'll see uh, Asher. You'll see different people in the New Testament from some of these tribes. They knew what tribes were from that had made it back. It wasn't just the southern kingdoms. Most of the southern kingdoms, but people from uh, the different kingdoms were still identified. Or I should say the different tribes were somewhat identified right? You have some Levites, right? Matthew is a Levite. Uh, We have others. Uh, But it's interesting because about 150 years later, the southern kingdom had become worse than the northern kingdom. And do you remember what it says? It says they became even worse. And what nation did God use to take the southern kingdom captive and disperse them throughout the world? Do you remember? The Babylonians, remember that? So the Assyrians 150 years earlier had waylaid the northern kingdom, left the land pretty desolate. The southern kingdom followed on their heels, became more more wicked than the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians who superseded the Assyrian kingdom took over. Well, some time went by and the Persians took over from the Babylonians, right? Right? And the Persians were more friendly toward the Jews, which is interesting because the Lord said he'd bring the people back, right, from the exile and the nations he had driven them. And he was bringing them back into the land. And so, so many of the Jews had gone back into the promised land. And they came back in a first huge wave through Zerubbabel and under his leadership. And they should have fared well, but a lot of them got right back into sin. They were living disgraced. Uh, the, you know, the temple for a time 
was not rebuilt yet. It would later get rebuilt. But then the walls remained downtrodden for a long period of time. So, and keep in mind, when you're a city, especially when you've been attacked, right? You want walls. Their walls defend you. It's essential for a kingdom, if it's going to be a kingdom, to have borders, okay? To have non-porous boundaries to keep uh, the evil people out that would love to destroy a country. So they didn't have walls. And Nehemiah became famous for building the walls. Now Ezra came just before Nehemiah and he had restored to the people the word of God, was teaching them the word of God, and he helped set the stage for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a very, very just interesting story. And so Ezra led a second group back into the promised land after Zerubbabel. And Nehemiah came with still others in like a third wave, albeit, you know, not as quite as big as uh, the populace that had been recovered through Zerubbabel and Ezra. But still, God was doing amazing things. And he used Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. Now think about this. Think about what's going on in Israel right now. Think about rebuilding the temple, how hard that would be to do, you know, because of the hostility that's over there right now. There was that kind of hostility, okay? There's, uh, the Jews want to rebuild the temple, and actually the Antichrist will sit in the rebuilt temple. So it's not something I would be giving money to. Oh, let's rebuild the temple, because the Antichrist is going to sit in it. And the, the old covenant is, you know, there's a Jewish temple institute right now trying to rebuild the temple, but they're into some weird stuff. You know, I've been into the Institute and checked it out and you can see a lot of the things there. They've got together replicas of what they have to rebuild the temple and so forth. And that's all prophetic, which is quite interesting. But it's interesting because at this time, this was a God thing. God was bringing them back into the land. And we learned some lessons from Nehemiah that are really, really important that teaches us that we now have to have heart for God's kingdom because he's building his kingdom right now, amen? The Lord's building his, we're called living stones, right? And when you win people to Christ, they become living stones in the Lord's temple. Amen? And that's a beautiful thing. And so I, I want you to understand this in light of you being like a Nehemiah. Being you, you and I and us together, working together to bring people into God's kingdom. Amen? And building his temple. Okay? And also building, you know, the walls, spiritually speaking, between us and evil. And one of the first things I think that we can learn from in Nehemiah chapter 1, as I was going through uh, Nehemiah, I was, you know, jotting down what I thought were some of the most awesome lessons. And one is that we need to be grieved over disrepair. We'd be grieved over the fact that the church isn't what it ought to be. That we, and it needs to start with our own lives. The Bible says judgment in 1 Peter 4. Judgment begins in the household of God. And if the righteous are scarcely sa saved, what will be the end of the wicked? That's pretty heavy. We want to make sure we're right with God as a living stone. And that we want to make sure we strengthen our other brothers and sisters as living stones. Amen. We want to make sure we witness the lust. And look how grieved Nehemiah is. It's really interesting. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. Because remember, he's hoping to get a good witness as to what's going on because of Ezra being there first, and he's heartbroken because the walls are down. And he's grieved over the state of the people of God and their lack of progress. When I heard these words, 
I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Wow. So he was grieved when he heard the words. And that motivated him. I love this, man. That motivated him to be part of the solution. Okay, he's hearing the sad news that even though God's people have been back in the land for a long time now, for quite a while, that the walls are still broken down. And he's grieved. He's bummed out. And that motivates him to be part of the solution. I want to encourage you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be a complainer on the outside complaining that. I wish we, this would happen. I wish the church was like this. I wish, no, be part of the solution, amen? Be a prayer warrior, amen? Be one that stands on the word of God. Be an encouragement to others. Walk in love, being humble, recognizing that we all fall short and we all need God's grace, amen? So he was grieved, verse four. But I love this as well, guys. He fasted and he prayed. When's the last time you fasted unto the Lord? You don't have to shout it out. Don't stand up and say, 10 days in a row. You know, you lose your reward, you know. But uh, Jesus said, you know, anyway, we won't get into that, but you gotta be careful. My point is this, is, is have you fast? Do you even fast the Lord? Jesus says, when my servant, he goes, he says, I'm sorry, when you fast, this is how to do it. Talked about not being like the Pharisees who use it as a tool to show off and win points with other men. He said, you have your reward. But Jesus didn't say, if you ever consider fasting, isn't that interesting? He said, when you fast. In other words, he expects his disciples to fast. Now, I don't give out, and I've got to do some messages pretty soon. Actually, maybe in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, we might do a few, some messages on fasting. I'm praying about that now. But I want to encourage you that if you say, man, I can't fast, I'll get a headache. How do you know? I've never fasted, but I'm sure I'll get a headache. Really? How do you know? Well, I did fast and I did get a headache. You know, I'm going to encourage you right now. Part of fasting, if you're not used to it, is going through some, a little bit of pain. You know that, right? It's true. But I have a problem. If I fast, it's a physiological problem. It could kill me. That might be true. Maybe you do. Then don't fast. That's true. Don't, you know, then seek the Lord another way. You can fast from other things other than food. Amen? Right? We could all fast in certain ways. Maybe it's fasting from a hobby that you like and that you've just done for every day for years and years and years, you know? Or whatever. There's, I mean, fasting from food, if you could do it, is, is, is great to do. But I want to encourage you that he took this so seriously that he was grieved over it. And being grieved over it moved him to action. I want to encourage you, be grieved over sin in your life. Be grieved over those things that break God's heart, that keep you from being all that God wants you to be in him. Amen? And repent of them and ask the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. And then I want to encourage you to follow the next examples. Pray and fast. Definitely one thing you should definitely fast from is your sin. Amen? I'm done with that. Amen? And do that not just for a little while. Yeah, Joe, I fasted from getting drunk for two days straight, man. Praise God. What? You should be getting drunk at all. Amen? No. So we need to, but I love this because Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Okay, look at chapter one, verse five. I said, I beseech you. That's, he's seeking the Lord. I, he's beseeching him, he's seeking him. Oh Lord God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Isn't that awesome? Works everything together for the good for those who what? Love and are called according to, right, his purpose. Here it says he preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who what? Love him and what? Keep his commandments, amen? It's imperative. It's God wants you to make sure, you need to make sure you love him. And I loved it. I love this because Nehemiah loved him and he's praying. He's a man of prayer. Verse six, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the what? Prayer of your servant. So he's a, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. You want to make sure you're a man and you're a woman of prayer. And when you see problems, that you pray about them. You don't just say, oh, that's terrible. No, you say, you know what? I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to be grieved over the problem, but I'm going to pray and seek the Lord and not act like it's, I'm, it's all about me. Because if you're on the outside of something and you're just judging it, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But you're not praying about it. That doesn't impress God at all. The Pharisees were really good at that. Your heart needs to be in seeking the Lord, amen, and crying out to him and wanting to see his glory and want to be part of the solution and, and loving God and loving his people, amen. So I love this. It's so beautiful. And he confesses, Nehemiah confesses, that's the next thing you need to keep in mind, you need to confess your sin. Look at 1.6 again. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes to the hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. See that? Which we have sinned against you. Notice he includes himself in the sin. This blows me away because keep in mind, prior to this, not too long before this, Daniel was in Babylonian captivity before the Persians took over and Nehemiah found himself in Persia. And what was Daniel doing? He recognized reading Jeremiah. Wow, we're only supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. The time is about up. What's going on? Lord, he sought the Lord and the Lord showed him, you know, uh, prophecy about the future and so forth and how he'd be set, they'd be set free from the Babylonian captivity, which they were. And now, but he prayed such a humble prayer when you read Daniel chapter nine. So in those, I, I'm telling you right now, it's one of the most beautiful, humble prayers in all of the Bible. And he, he was confessing the sins of his people. He's he heart sick for their sin and praying that God would restore them. He was praying for his own sin. And here we see Nehemiah doing similar. This is how God uses people. These are the people that stick out, Nehemiah, you know, Ezra, Daniel, because they're men of prayer. You want to be people of prayer. You'll see throughout the scripture, men and women of prayer, the Lord looks to, he loves them. The Lord talks about a woman with a quiet spirit before him is precious in his sight. That blows me away. I love those verses where it talks about those things that are precious to God, you know, I was just looking at another scripture that is similar to that about how God loves, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. I was looking at that. I think that's chapter nine of 2 Corinthians verse seven, you know, where it talks about not to give under compulsion or, uh, you know, not, or reluctantly, but it says to give, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. And I thought, isn't that interesting? God loves a heart that's cheerful about giving because he's seen someone who's trusting him and someone who's like, being like him and walking in his image, being a blessing to others, sharing what they have with others. That's a beautiful thing. Since the Mexico trip is back on, and when we head to Mexico, and you're giving unto the Lord, you're saying, Lord, I just want to be a servant. 
I'm here to love you and love people and just be an example and give of myself to you. That blesses his heart. He loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Well, Nehemiah loved the Lord. And now he's praying. He's seeking the Lord. And he's confessing his sins. He's confessing the sins of Israel. It says in the middle of verse 6, which we have sinned against you. And so he himself and I, he says, I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So he's confessing the sins because it's these sins that led them into captivity. Can you imagine being totally uprooted from your home and your country and deported in a totally different country and living in slums for many, many years? Many people dying without going back to their homeland, especially people that were taken into captivity when they're a bit older. That's radical, man. This is radical things these guys are going through. And, and God's got their attention, many of them. Some go back and they still get back in idolatry and stuff, which is really crazy when you think about it. But how many people do we know that get delivered from something really radically, right? They got a great testimony. Before you know it, they're back out of the end. You're just shaking your head like, oh, Lord God, help that person to you know, get right with you. Again, we want to be part of the solution and not just wagging our finger, but crying out to God, Lord, help them be restored, right? Confront people that you see fall, that fall away in love because, and consider your own self because you too can be tempted, it says in Galatians chapter 6, the first three verses. Now, this is amazing when you look at it. So I love it because you see a confession of sin. And it's really interesting too to me. He prays, and this is how you pray successfully. This is a, this, and I've, mentioned this principle several times throughout my ministry, is you pray in accordance with God's word. If you pray for your own dreams, Lord, I pray that I'd have a big mount, mansion on a mountain. It would be the biggest mansion in, in all the state I want to go to. And, and you, I'd have this car and this boat and I'd have a bunch of servants. And God's just like, what? <laughs> you know? The Bible says if you ask anything in accordance with his will, you have it. Amen. Jesus said, to abide in me and I'll abide in you and you'll bear much fruit. And, and you know, he that, you know keeps, he that loves me keeps my commandments and you can ask whatever you wish in my name and you'll receive it. Whatever we wish in his name, wow. Well, does that mean I can pray for the, having the biggest mansion in whatever state I'm going to live in and da-da-da-da? Are you really abiding in Christ at that point? Are you really seeking to obey his commandments and glorify him and live for him when you pray that prayer? And those are the prayers that don't get answered. The prayers that get answered that are in accordance with his will. Prayer is not about getting God to do our will. Prayer is about asking God to help us fulfill his will for our lives. So it's like the, you know, one illustration I like. It's like the, you know, the, the wind is coming against us, you know. And prayer is basically doing a 180 if the, if the wind represents God, so to speak, and getting in God's flow, amen, getting in his will and walking with him. So it's interesting, watch him pray in accordance with God's word. And be, believe me, the prayers you want answered, the prayers that, that will get answered, the prayers that you want to be uh, heard and that you want to be involved in being part of the answer to these prayers is prayers that are in accordance with God's will. Because the worst place to be is outside of God's will, amen? The best place to be is in the center of God's will, amen? And watch what happens in chapter 2 or chapter 1 verse 8. He says, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And it's like, well, yeah, God remembers that. 
He's saying, God, remember that. And, and God's like, well, you know, Nehemiah is one of the scattered people, right? A descendant of the scattered people. So what happens? But he goes on to say to the Lord, which is quite interesting. He goes on to say far more than that. Listen to what he says. But if you return to me, he's reminding the Lord that you also said this. And he, it's not that the Lord needs to be reminded, but he's saying, Lord, I see this in your word. And I want to be part of the fulfillment of this. And I want to make sure this is activated in my life. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So he's quoted Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 1, 25. He's quoting what the Lord said back to him and saying, hey, you said you'd scatter us if we were disobedient. But you also said that if we come back to you and seek you, you bring us back into the land, which had been happening through Zerubbabel and Ezra before Nehemiah. They are your servants and your people from whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. Catch that? I'm praying that your word's fulfilled and make your servant successful, meaning help me be part of what you've promised you will do. And that's why, what, what did God promise that he would do? He promised that he would use the church and that we'd be a witness to all the world, amen? So that should be one of our prayers. Lord, help me be, let your servant, let me, that should be your prayer. Be a servant and get your word out to the world. Use me to your glory, amen? Today, and grant him compassion. Before, now, this is interesting. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. What does he mean, to grant him compassion before this man? What man? Well, very next part of that verse. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. You know what a cupbearer is, right? Cupbearer is the guy, his job it is, is to make sure that the king has the right, uh, uh, the, the right wine or the right juice or right water, whatever he wants, and that it's exactly how he wants it, and that it's protected, and you protect that with your life, that he does not fa fall ill at all. Cupbearer was a very serious job. He had to be very, very trusted, and Nehemiah was in a very, very trusted position. I think it's interesting because when he prays the Lord, he doesn't say, uh, grab me to have compassion before the, the king, because he recognizes God is sovereign. He says, before this man. I mean, before your eyes, he's just a man. I know it, Lord. You're the king. He's been close enough to Artaxerxes to know he's just a man. But he wants favor from him because even though he's not, they're not in Babylonian captivity anymore, the Persians are ruling over them, who've been far kinder to them, the, the Jews. But his nation is in disarray, Israel specifically the southern part of the kingdom, and the walls have not been rebuilt. And there's a lot of hostility there, kind of like there is today. You know, there's a wall that was built, right? You look at the Gaza Strip and so forth, and all the carnage that's taken place with a lot of the Muslims there. They used, before the wall was built there, a lot of people want that wall to be torn down. But before that wall was there, when I was young, you know what it seemed like you heard every other day? 
you know, suicide bombings with, you know, cars and buses being blown up and stuff. It was like routine on the, on the news. They built that wall to separate Israel from the Gaza Strip and, the, and a lot of the militant Muslims, and there, many of them are still militant. You know, it's often been said, if you took all the borders around, down, around Israel, the other nations would all be safe. But guess what would happen to Israel overnight? You'd have wicked, just total attacks. I mean, that's their history. A lot of hostility. It's a spiritual war too, right? So it's interesting. Nehemiah is praying according to the Lord's word. It's quite astonishing. He's a cupbearer before the king. And look at this. He's going to continue now. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So he had never shown sadness in the presence of the king. Let's say he was never sad, but his presence, he, you, I want to keep a good attitude, you know what, before the king, because you don't want him to just see a grumpy dude giving him his cup or a guy that looks sick, right? So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. He's like, oh, what's going to happen to me, right? I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why would my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? They've been reduced to charcoal and rubble. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love this. He's asking him, what would you request? Does he just say the first thing that comes to his mind? No, he prayed. I love this, man. Because when the Bible talks about praying without ceasing, We seek the Lord. We should be seeking the Lord day and night, crying out to him, you know. When you go to bed at night, seek the Lord. If you wake up throughout the night, seek the Lord. What a time to pray. When you wake up in the morning, seek the Lord. When you're driving to work or school or wherever you're going, seek the Lord. Amen? When you're taking a shower, seek the Lord. Okay? When you're in the middle of a situation, but Joe Joe gets really, really busy. At my work, sometimes I see the boss and he's like drilling me and I could get intimidated. Hey, he's before the king. He's afraid because he looks sick and the cupbearer is not supposed to look sick. And what does he do? That's what you, that's what you need to pray the most, right? When you're in situations that are difficult, right? That's when you need to pray. He doesn't rely on his own strength. And I, we call these flare prayers, you know? Where it's like, I mean, he's being questioned by the king. And he wants to make sure he honors God. And he can't believe the opportunity that's just been before him. What would you request? Hmm. Do we have a Domino's pizza nearby? You know, he doesn't say something silly like, you know, wow, blow his request, right? He gets this one request at least, and who knows if the king will fulfill it. But what does he say? He prays. How many times do we not have the right answer, and we say something stupid, or we say something we regret because we're not praying? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I just pray when I, just before I eat. That's a lame prayer life. If you just pray before you eat, praise God, you pray before you eat, that's more than a lot of people. But pray, the Bible says to pray without ceasing, you know? Well, how can I pray without ceasing when I fall asleep? I'm not praying. Well, the point about praying without ceasing is that you continue with an attitude of prayer, that you just don't actually stop and say, I don't pray anymore. You're just a person of prayer. You pray throughout the day. You pray throughout the night. You seek the Lord. 
And by the way, when that happens, check out what's happening. Nehemiah confesses his sins, right? He's, it's weighing on his heart. He's able to hide his grief to the king. The Lord moves on the king's heart. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. And he moves upon King Artaxerxes' heart. And then Nehemiah is just tripping out. I can't believe, oh, it must be the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to say? And I encourage you, man, if you take these things seriously that we're talking about, and you say, hey, uh, yep, definitely I want to learn to be a man of prayer more. You'll see answers to your prayers. You'll see God work in your life in radical ways. His eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, this Bible says, looking to strengthen those, right, who are surrendered to him. Now, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse five, I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah. That's a big request, man. Send me to Judah. That's the capital of Israel, right? To the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. He's not just saying send me so I can rally the troops and come back and be your cupbearer. He says so I can rebuild it. That's a huge request. Then the king said to me, the queen, the queen sitting beside him, pretty cool situation here, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for governors for the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates for the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house of which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was what? On me. Man, be a person of prayer so the good hand of God could be on you. Amen? And this is really cool too because King Artaxerxes is making, there's this decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And by the way, what did the angel tell Daniel? From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 69 sevens, right? And the Messiah would be what? Cut off. So this happened, even our secular encyclopedias, I've read it in a secular, like encyclopedias 444, 445 AD. They, they're not sure exactly which one, they say. But if you count from 444 or 445 AD, you know, and we don't get to go through all the math because I've done this message a few times, it brings you to about 33 AD, when Christ was crucified. And in Daniel chapter 9, it says, when the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem, which happens right here, through Artaxerxes, the king Nehemiah, it brings you to about 33 AD, the date when Christ was crucified. It's amazing. So there's a lot going on here. So this is really amazing because his prayer is radically answered. Now, you guys... Next time you think, man, I don't need to pray, or prayer's not that important, too busy to pray, think about this. That wall was laid down and burnt down for about 100 years. Nehemiah was a little frustrated too. His people had been in the land for a long time now. Some, they'd been back after the diaspora, many of them, and it wasn't rebuilt. Didn't even start on it. Guess how long it took him after he got back to rebuild it with the help of others? 52 days. 
Don't underestimate the power of prayer. The fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. We have not because we ask not. Start asking the Lord to be more involved in his will and do, do, say, Lord, help me do more things for you. And we see areas where you think the church can be strengthened. Say, Lord, please use me in those areas and help me have a humble heart and be and helpful. Be an encouragement. I'm not, not just talking about it here at Blessed Hope, but I'm talking about just the kingdom of God, you know? And we know there's more things the Lord wants to do. He wants to see more people come to him. He wants to see the gospel get out more, amen? He wants to see more living stones building his kingdom. And that's where we all come in and we should be praying, Lord, use me. And it's just amazing how he uses all of us if we cry out to him. Now, what I love about Nehemiah too is he's single-minded. He's a single-minded guy. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He's all about the Lord's will. Chapter 2, verse 12 of Nehemiah. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what, what my, my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So he rose in the night, and even though he's not sharing it yet with others what's going on in his heart, he's focused, man. He's focused like a laser on doing God's will. He's excited. Man, I get to go abroad back to my homeland and help rebuild Jerusalem. Amen? Now, that's amazing. He rises at night. And being focused is huge because he's going to have a lot of opposition. Serious opposition. Okay? Sennacherib and Sanballat and an Arabian guy and just people that are just mocking. You're going to see that in a little bit. But it, 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 you don't read about that until a little later because he's focused on doing God's will. And if you focus too much on the enemy and just focus on the enemy, you'll, you'll get paralyzed. Yeah, you got to be aware of the enemy. You're supposed to be, not be aware of his devices. We need to understand who he is and how to fight him. But you need to make sure your ultimate fixation is, is Jesus. Amen? You know, it's interesting. Uh, Tom Friends of the New York Times years ago asked uh, Coach Jimmy Johnson, uh, you know, what he had told his players before the Dallas Cowboys had won the Super Bowl in 1993. What did you tell them that kept them so focused, you know? I mean, what, what, how did they just play so flawlessly? And uh, not those exact words, but he, he asked them how they, he kept them so focused. And he listened to this. I told them that if they laid a two by four across the floor, everybody there would walk across it and not fall. Because our focus would be on walking the length of that board. But if I put that same board 10 stories high between two buildings, only a few would make it because the focus would be on falling. Okay? They'd be looking at the crowd below, the cars going, and everything else. And they'd fall. The Bible says that we're to keep our focus on Jesus. Amen? Be aware of what's going on. But look to Jesus. And Nehemiah was laser focused on the will of the Lord. And by the way, the Cowboys won that Super Bowl, 93, 52 to 7. That's crazy. I want to score like that with Jesus, you know. I want to stay focused, man, on what he has for me. Most Super Bowls don't turn out 52 to 7, okay? Now, it's critical. Somebody let me, I was at, I don't know where it was, about a couple months ago. I was, what, I think, 
my Uncle Tom's house, my Uncle Tom's house, Uncle Tom's house, we say to the nephews and nieces, but my brother Tom's house. And, uh, and it, I think it was his son, uh, Patty's son, Danny, had one of those things you stick on your head where you see like a virtual reality kind of thing, right? And you get out of the elevator, and it reminds me of the story, and you walk on a board out before, you're going to fall forever, it looks like, because it's like you got to stay on this board, it's narrow, you walk out on it, and you're just on a ledge. And I'm watching, I think, Patty and Peggy do it, my, two of my sisters, right? And, uh, and they're like, ah, ah, freaking out, I'm like, it's just carpet, you know? Just walk. It's just carpet. You know it's carpet. And I'd never stuck one of those things on my head. Then I stuck it on my head. I said, okay, they kept saying, try it, try it, try it. So I stuck it on my head. And I'm like, I'm competitive though. But I was like, that's gnarly looking, man. I want to take a step, but it looks so real. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. So guess what I did? I knew it was just carpet. So I just closed my eyes and just walked. <laughs> Didn't say I couldn't do that, man. <laughs> They're like, oh, you did it. I go, yeah, it's easy. <laughs> uh, so I was focused on reality because that was not reality, you know. Just walk, Joe. I opened up a couple times, but I just like, whoa. And, uh, but it's important that, and, and I knew I couldn't fall because there's nowhere to fall. Now, with us as Christians, you can fall. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can't fall. Amen? Because if you're following Jesus and keep your focus on him, you can't fall. And that's important that we, we, we walk with Jesus and we stick with Jesus and we're laser focused on the Lord. So I think it's very, very important that we uh, look at Nehemiah because he's a great example for that. And we need to watch our walks, you know. The Bible says, you know, to watch our walks, basically. 1 Timothy 4.1, it talks about falling. It says the Holy Spirit speaks or expressly that in latter times some will depart or fall from the faith, right? And they'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons and all these lies, right? But he says in verse 16, at the very last, that's the first verse, but the very last verse of that chapter, he says, watch your life, your behavior, and your doctrine. And in so doing, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Is that a trip? Watch your life, it says, and your doctrine, and in so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. Now, you don't ultimately save yourself. We're saved by the blood of Christ. But the point is, is that if I'm watching my behavior, I'm continuing to trust Jesus, amen, and I'm watching my doctrine, I'll get off into these weird teachings that are not biblical, follow some cultic teaching. I'll save myself in the context of when he says save yourself by continuing to trust Jesus, amen, and trust his, his gospel, and his saving power. So it's important that we watch our lives and our doctrines. And that's why when you're at Blessed Hope, why do I emphasize living for him and our behavior and walking a holy, righteous life? Why do I emphasize sound doctrine over and over again? Because every New Testament letter almost was written to correct bad behavior or wrong doctrine. And we need to make sure our hearts are right with the Lord and that we, we believe the truth, and we got to watch out for subtle deceptions, even in the church, that can make us think that we don't have to focus on Jesus. Amen? Amen. So another thing about Nehemiah that's uh, important, he, it was not only singularly focused, and that's why I encourage you, when Jesus gave us a prayer to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's about you, Father. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's about his kingdom, his will. Amen? That's how that prayer starts off. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all your needs will be met. So that's what we ought to be doing, and that's how we ought to be living as Christians. Amen? Putting him first. And as you seek him first, and you continue to seek him first, you won't fall. Because you can't seek him first and fall. That's the key. Staying focused on Jesus. Now, the next point I want to make Nehemiah was not a lone ranger Christian. He built the kingdom, the walls, with others. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in? That Jerusalem is desolate? I said to who? Them. Other, other Jews. It was desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come let what? Come, watch what? Watch me and what I'm going to do. Is that what he says? No, he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I love that, man. It's really, really cool when you think about it. We build the kingdom together, amen? Did Jesus send them out individually or in twos? In twos. He had the 70. He had the 12. And then he had the 70. Then he had the 120, which grew to over 3,000. The 120 plus, and plus, actually, it's more than that. And the 3,000, then right after that, another 4,000 or five, and then just keeps growing. The kingdom kept growing. But we're not to be islands. We're a body, amen? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, the Bible says. We're all parts of the body of Christ, and he uses us all. And that's what you have to do, is you have to re- re- recognize that whatever part of the body you are, you're very important to the Lord. The Bible says... If there's two, one falls, the other one could help them up. Amen? The Bible says two-chord strand is not easily broken, but a three-chord strand, man, that's strong, man. Especially when the Lord is that third chord. Amen? And I just think it's interesting. When geese, I love that example in geese, and I've shared it a number of times before in the past, a few times at least because it's so powerful, is that when geese fly, how do they fly? They don't do so well if they fly solo. Okay? Because they fly, fly solo on the freeway, they can get it. No, I'm just kidding. If they fly solo, meaning alone, you know, they don't get very far. But if they fly together and they fly in that V, right? They're honking at each other. They're encouraging one another. We're called to encourage one another. You can't encourage one another if you're not in fellowship in some way, man. The Bible says encourage one another daily and gather together all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. So it's important. And, and right now, things are getting ugly. Think Christ's redemption is drawing near. Amen? So it's important to be getting together. The Bible says get, get, get together all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. Absolutely important. And those, those geese will honk at each other. They'll honk in an encouraging way. You know? Not like in New York. It's just, a, it's just a honk here and there. And, and then they'll rotate. They'll get in back of each other so they'll experience the draft. Because if not, they're not in back of each other, I mean, they're going to take a lot more wind on. And I've read that they travel about 72% further when they're in formation than they would if they were alone. Can you imagine if you could become 72% more efficient and effective in everything you do? Think about it. At work, your boss says, well, you're 72% more fruitful than you were last year. That'd be pretty cool to hear, right? You know? Even if you're still at home and you're living with your parents and can you imagine your parents coming to you, wow, you're 72% more productive than last year. But think about for the kingdom of God, amen? 
You're, you know, we become more effective when we work together. And Nehemiah recognized that he wasn't going to go build the wall alone. How many of you that are going on the Israel trip would like to f- would find out that nobody can make it but you? You wouldn't feel as, nearly as effective, amen? It's neat that we get to go together. So, and I just think of my ministry, man. I can't tell you how much I've benefited from ministering here at Blessed Hope. Pastor Steve has been my associate for years and years. Uh, elders that I've had and deacons and, and ushers and Sunday school workers and worship leaders and uh, people that help in all these different ways, some ways you don't ever, ever see or know about. Very, very important. Good fight ministries, you know. I mean, we've been able to, we've, a lot of our stuff, our stuff has been seen literally by millions of people, by God's grace. Not because I'm like doing something, but because God's doing something. He's using our team. We have a great team. God's given me a lot of help through the years with different people. And the team I have now, right now, it's been the most effective it's ever been the last so many years. It's been amazing. But you leave me alone on my lonesome, I'm not going to be bearing a whole lot of fruit on my lonesome. Same thing, my wife, I can't imagine. My wife does, I, I would not get hardly anything done compared to what I'm able to get done because of my wife. You know, I don't have a track record and I juggle more than most pastors. And I only say that not to give myself anything, but to say I got a lot going on through the years and I don't have a track record of missing a lot of counseling appointments. Oh, Joe never showed up. And that, but I guess if my wife wasn't there, I'd probably have a list of people. But she's just always, oh, you got this. Oh, you got that. Two are better than one. And then there's the times where, don't I have this? Oh, yeah, you do. Because she's getting, we're getting a little older, I guess, you know. It's like, oh, that's right. I'm glad you said that. So now we help each other out, you know. But it's interesting. So we, need all, we all need to help each other. We need to be there for each other. Joint heirs of the grace of life. Koinonia, fellowship, chapter 2, verse 18. He encouraged the people of God by sharing the testimony of God's goodness in his life. Chapter 2, verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. I love that, man. He gives a testimony about how the Lord had spoken to him and what he was doing for the Lord. And they want to be part of that. And when you're doing things for the Lord, you can give testimonies to what God's doing to encourage other people to get excited about working for the Lord. Amen? Because there's a lot of, you serve the Lord, there'll be things happening. You share those things that the Lord's doing with others, it gets them fired up. Amen? So I think that's really cool. He stood up to God's enemies, verses 19 to 20. We need to stand against the enemy. But when Sanballat, okay, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Verse 20, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. Wow. And that's what's going on in Israel right now. People are fighting against Israel's right to exist as a nation. After they came back, after the Roman dispersion under the Roman Empire, when they were dispersed the world, then God bring, bring them, has brought them back now for the last several decades. And they have mockers who want to withstand them and say, you can't do this. And they want to annihilate them. Okay. And people are trying to stop them. Even Black Lives Matter, and absolutely Black Lives Matter, but I'm talking about the organization, the Marxist organization that is against, that a lot of black African Americans don't want at all because they're Marxists and they want to socialist, they want to to stop the family. 
they say that on their website, they want to destroy the nuclear family, the patriarchal system. And there's a lot of crazy stuff, but one of their, one of their initiatives is to, 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 they want to see Israel cease as a nation. Kind of like what's happening right here. That's what God's enemies are about. It's interesting. So he stood against God's enemies. And look at, check this out. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he what? Built while the trumpeter stood near me. So they're building with the trowel, the wall, right? And they got a sword strapped to their side. I love that picture. That's who we ought to be as men and women of God. Amen. We build the kingdom. We witness the loss. We bring living stones into his temple. Amen. But we also have the sword of the spirit. We put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't get caught up saying build, build, build. We keep our head on a swivel, recognizing we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and the enemy's out to get us, amen? Be sober, be vigilant, Peter said. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's important. So you build, and you have your sword with you, Amen? Spiritually, that's how you get through life, brothers and sisters. You want to be successful in your life for Jesus? Build the kingdom and wear the sword of the Spirit. Amen? Put on the full armor of God that you may stand in the evil day. And then in chapter 3, we read about how they finished God's work. They finished, verse 1, and Eliashib and the high priest arose and his brothers and priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall of the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next, verse two, next to him, men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zachar, uh, the son of Emery built. Verse three, now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors and its bolts and its bars. And you see all these different names of people that built the wall. Verse 32, the last verse of the chapter. Between the upper room and the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. I love it. It gives all these different names of those that were part of it. And guess what? Our names are, written, are already written in heaven. And when New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, the names of the apostles, right? And the 12 tribes of Israel are on them. You build for God's kingdom and your name will be part of the memorial of what you've done for the glory of God. That's a heavy, heavy thing when you think about it. But look at chapter 3, verse 5. It's a really sad verse. In the midst of all these glorious verses and all these beautiful names, we read, moreover, next to him... The Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. The nobles sat by, they didn't support the work. Don't be like the nobles who wring your hands and complain about everybody else doing the work and not supporting them. Be part of the work, amen? That verse is put there for a reason, so we won't be among them who just sit on the sidelines and complain, but that will be about the work of the Lord, amen? We need to make sure we build the walls, the spiritual walls around us. We keep our eyes on the Lord. We don't walk in the flesh. We walk in the spirit. We, we pray. We build ourselves up by praying in the Holy Spirit, as it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Because the scriptures say, in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who does not control his temper. Okay. Another verse like that in Proverbs says, he who is slow to anger is better than a warrior and he who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. You want to make sure that you're not given over to pride 
arrogance, bad temper, anger. You want to make sure, because guess what? You're going to be like a city without walls. You want to make sure that you're focused on the Lord, that you're humble before him, that you're confessing your sins, that you recognize that, yes, there's problems. We need to build up the walls for the Lord. Spiritually speaking, that we need to continue to build his temple by bringing living stones in and that we bow and kneel before him, recognizing that it's all by his grace that we stand. Amen. And that we humbly serve him until he comes or until we die. Amen. And it's all good in the end if we keep focused on Jesus. Amen. Was it me or did that message go like really fast? Okay, let me do part two right now. No, there's no part two.